there are good ways that you can do small things within working hours and they don't necessarily have to impinge on outside working hours. And I know there's things like signing petitions, things you can do, small things that you keep alive that burning spirit. But when you don't have enough time or energy to really drive forward, and then when you get that capacity in whichever way you can, you can probably grow from that. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male middle-class people leading our organizations. I absolutely believe we need to change this and I do think we can and one of the ways of doing so is in my hope is that many of you listening right now to this podcast will eventually progress to the most senior leadership positions possible where you make decisions that make our world a better place. But to make this practically possible I also run a social enterprise to provide the practical support in order to get there. So beyond the podcast I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus which is all about the practicalities of supporting parents to get to those more senior roles through equal career progression but also do it in a way that works for them rather than emulating types of working that we've done 50 years ago. So a few updates. We now have a free resource section on the website where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave, securing a promotion as a working parent, applying for a flexible working request or managing dual career couples. All that is on leadersplus.org. I'm also delighted that you can now apply to the Cross-Sector Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme for the cohort starting in November. Applications close on the 29th of October 2023 and we have 60 spaces available. Last year, a really large proportion of those spaces were taken up by podcast listeners and I would be delighted to see many of you apply. It is a nine-month career development program for working parents where you connect with like-minded working parents who love their careers and their kids and don't want to sacrifice one for the other. You will get a personal senior leader mentor and structured thinking time to work out what you want for your family and career and also get that practical support to get there. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. In this episode, I interview the brilliant Kate Smith about what she has learned about dealing with her own assumptions about herself, where she stands on whether you should adapt to emulate the stereotypical male leader, how she became an executive director, and why the term imposter syndrome isn't always helpful. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Kate, to the podcast. Thank you, and I'm delighted to join you. So I'm Kate Smith. I have two young people, I can't say children anymore, a 16-year-old daughter called Matilda and a 19-year-old son called Felix. And I live with my partner, Alex, who also works at CBRE with me. I can't forget Dougal, our very large Airedale Terrier, who terrorises the whole neighbourhood. And my day job, I am an executive director at CBRE. And for those who haven't heard of CBRE, you probably see our green signs in lots of windows. So we're a real estate organisation. We're a big, large global real estate organisation, about 110,000 people. My role as an executive director, I work in our consulting business. So day to day, I'm working with lots of different organisations, helping them think about their workplaces, the future of work, hybrid working adoption, all of those things. As a side gig on top of that, I co-chair our women's network. I'm a sponsor of our Next Gen program, so looking after all of our apprentices and graduates across the UK business. I am a mentor at Leaders Plus, most importantly, and also there was one more. I sit on the strategy board of our UK business, so really looking at how we move the business forward. And I am a co-chair of 50-50 Women on Boards. And I really hate it when other people start podcasts and list off all the things that they're doing and I feel inadequate. And now I've probably done the same to people, <laughs> but I can only do that now my children are a bit older. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting because I will unpick exactly how you're doing all that and where you get the energy for doing all that. And also, I mean, from the work with Lisa Plus, I know you're doing it well. Um, and we get really good feedback from you as a mentor. 
So can you share something that you used to believe and subscribe to about having a big job and children that you're not subscribing to anymore? Have you changed your mind on anything? Yeah, I guess through my life, I have read a lot of feminist books and kind of understood a lot around feminism that perhaps I didn't know. And I think earlier in my career and with younger children, I really felt that I wasn't good enough at at either of them. And this is a common thing that you will hear from lots of people, I'm sure. And I think I berated myself and felt that I wasn't good enough at those things. And I don't believe that anymore. I actually think that I was good enough. And I taught myself that I was good enough. But it took quite a lot of, I guess, talking about that, reading about it, understanding that actually, you're set an impossible task. (laughs) Even to do with school hours and working hours, all of these things are too many things. The world of work is not set up for working parents very often. So Yeah, I think having that realization and being able to tell a lot of people the same thing and look at different ways that we can change the working environment to support working parents better. Mm. Interesting. So what changed then? Okay, I'll speak from my own experience. So it's sometimes easy to read or to just list the things that you're good at and then realize, well, actually, on paper, I shouldn't feel like I'm rubbish at doing what I'm doing. But sometimes it's still hard to shift from those assumptions even if you know that there are structural problems that are causing the tension, is it just, I mean, you're not old, but is it just <laughs> the passage of time that has changed? <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, what is it? I'm trying to figure out what is it that has changed? Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough for two periods in my life to go to therapy. And I think therapy has mm-hmm. been a really good thing to help me reflect on that and kind of learn. I think particularly women, but a lot of people have a lot of automatic negative thoughts, that they're sometimes their own harshest critic. Um, And one of the things I talk to a lot of women in our business about is really starting to recognize what's a fact and what's a feeling. And actually, you can step back and say, the fact is, I'm doing all these things really well. I'm holding down a job. I'm raising two children. I am succeeding at this. The feeling that I'm failing or the feeling that I'm not good enough is a feeling. It's not a fact. So that little It takes practice over time of A, thinking about what's a fact and what's a feeling and making sure that you give more strength to the facts, whereas actually, naturally, I think we give more strength to the feelings. And then the second one is really around that recognizing automatic negative thoughts and first of all, recognizing them. And then second of all, you can kind of coach yourself to say, thank you for giving me that brain, but I don't want that now. Actually, I did a thing where I visualized screwing them up and throwing them over a mountain. (laughs) And actually, you start to train your brain over time to not listen to the negative. And I think a lot of people, I was actually discussing this with someone the other day, a lot of people think if they start being positive to themselves, they'll become arrogant or egotistical or any of those things. But actually, you're just having the kind of kind conversation with yourself that you would have with anyone else. And yet somehow the way we speak to ourselves is not as kind as the way we speak to others. And a lot of that, particularly as women and girls, you're often raised to be smaller, to put the feelings of others first, to take care of others. That's how you're told to be a good girl. And we carry a lot of that into our adult lives. So recognizing a lot of that and a lot of practicing is exactly kind of how I got to that piece. But it took a lot of time. And yes, a bit of it is being older. Definitely life gets easier in my mind as you get older in terms of that self-acceptance and the wisdom that you get and the supportive friends and family and colleagues and the wisdom you get from that. So yeah, 20s were fraught, 30s were fraught and you know, raising children. I'm in my 40s now and feeling like, oh, I've got this now. <laughs> and then menopause hits. <laughs> mm. uh, it's really interesting. It's so interesting also what you're saying about getting help in learning these things, because I think you probably don't need to be at rock bottom to need therapy, but actually why should you lead your life? you know that is less joyful than if you dealt with some of those assumptions don't don't wait to have therapy until you feel you really need it building up that kind of resilience and those kind of good positive skills is really important like at cbre employees can have a free cognitive behavioral therapy app and you can just Mm -hmm. work on that in your own time and enjoy that kind of thing and use of like things like the calm app there's lots of things that you can do to kind of proactively start but Lots of people listening will probably go, yeah, if I had time to do any of that. Thanks, Kate. (laughs) And I really, really empathize with that. I mean, you come across as very zen, if you don't mind me saying so. It's all the pain meditation. (laughs) (laughs) We've met outside of this and, you know, you always 
just when I meet you, you would never seem to be rushing, even though you've got a pretty big job in a pretty big organization. And I just wonder, is my impression wrong? Or have you been able to find a way to make that very big job in a very pressurized sector less pressurized? Feel free to tell me that I'm completely wrong and it's all faking. Yeah, I think there's always that kind of Instagram facade, isn't there, that you think, how has she got it all? Does she do all those things and stay really calm? There are definitely times when I'm overcommitted and yeah, I wear myself out at the end of the day or the end of the week. But I guess, I guess where does the calm come from? So a lot of my early career, I was in kind of customer service and customer facing roles. So you build a resilience, you build all your people skills, but actually it's working in a job that I really enjoy, surrounded by people who I really enjoy working with. That, that gives you energy. And it's also knowing myself. So I can be on and calm and go and do public speaking or do all the things I need to do. But I also know as somebody who is actually quite introverted, that I need time to go and be myself, be by myself to recharge. So it's getting to know yourself, I think, and knowing your limits and what makes you the best you and what makes you drained and surrounding myself with lots of lovely people who support what I do. So I have a great boss, I have a great team, I have great colleagues around me. And I guess a lot of delegating, which is difficult when, again, it's quite often you're raised to be quite perfectionist and do all of those things. So I think one of the things that unlocked a lot of my career trajectory was around learning not to be a perfectionist. It's learning how to be, I'm going to say all of the, the cliches, but being comfortable with being uncomfortable, kind of learning how to work and move from meetings to talks to whatever else, slightly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> Being able to improvise, uh, being able to take risks, all of those things, which, you know, they come with a lot of privilege as a white woman, as somebody who's accessed to good education, who's never had to worry about a lot of things. I acknowledge that I've had that privilege and therefore that enables me to feel I can take risks and do those things. But yeah, it's all one big learn. I think the other thing that I really makes me who I am is I love learning. So I would not be happy if I wasn't always learning, if I wasn't finding ways of books to read or I do a lot of my learning through social media and talking to other people. I think that's maybe that's what makes me feel calm is that I'm taking all of those inputs all the time and kind of learning them. I don't know. I don't feel calm all the time. So it's nice that I come across as that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interesting. I don't know if I come across as calm to you, but a lot of people told me in previous roles that I was calm. And yet I was at a very different end to you. I was actually not feeling calm inside at all. So It's funny how it's sometimes quite different. And in terms of the, you call it flying by the seat of your pants, or we can edit this out if you want, but I'm just interested, does it not feel like you're winging it 50% of the time? Yeah, yeah. I think the winging it comes with trusting yourself to wing it. So Mm -hmm. quite often we will over-prepare. We will, you know, have to do all the research and do all those things. And, And yes, you've got to do enough of that. But I think I was doing too much, which meant that, it was holding me back. So the ability to be able to feel I'm going to be okay in this one. And inside your brain's going, "Mm -mm, you're going to fail, you're going to look like an idiot, all of the things that your brain tells you. And you've got to be able to override that and say, no, actually, I can do this. I've done this before. I can do it. And the more that you take those little steps into doing uncomfortable things, then you get comfortable with them. You know, like I could have had terrible stress. I mean, very happily, very luckily, My mum made me do drama and ballet when I was a child. So I have something around that kind of performing stuff that you need when you you need to do, you know, sort of get your diaphragm and do your breathing exercises and and all that stuff that helps me set myself up, I guess, to do those public speaking things. But I have little practice things like that. So when I'm going to go and do a um, like a big pitch or a presentation, I have a certain perfume that I'll wear. Kind of gets me in the right mode for that. I was also taught another one about showing your diamond necklace. So you don't actually wear a diamond. You pretend you've got a really amazing necklace on and it gives you that kind of posture and you walk into a room and you kind of open up on your body language. So there's lots of little sort of tricks and hacks that I've picked up over time, which first of all, you kind of practice and then they just become habit and then they become who you are. I'm a very strong believer in learned skills. People say, I'm not a natural that I don't do that. I've always thought, I can identify the things I want to do better. I'm going to figure out, learn from other people, watch people who do it well, read up and learn. And I think those learned skills become stronger than perhaps some people who have them as natural skills. So Hmm. I like that constant. That's That's very true. But you have to embrace that it will feel really awkward and unnatural at first. 
And I think sometimes that holds us back from learning new skills because we just, we don't like the awkwardness or the, it feeling inauthentic, but you have to do that. Yeah. Remind take, you yourself of the necklace, for example. Exactly. Take, take some calculated risks, jump off some cliffs. I mean, it's really interesting listening to you. I just had a aha moment, which maybe I needed to hear <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. now. It feels like, you know, the idea that you are actually perfectionism is not what leads to excellence automatically excellence doesn't necessarily come from that sometimes winging it with the all the history the education the learning you've done that can also lead to excellence and sometimes we assume there's only one route to excellence I think yeah well I think you know the schooling system sets you up for that bit doesn't it it's you know the more you perform in exams learn do the system as the system tells you to do so then to suddenly be told it's not all about that that's quite different because you're wired that way and, you know, you form pe- adults through childhood. So, yeah, the ability to be able to trust yourself to wing it, it's very, very important. And it's certainly how I get all the things done. That and being surrounded by lots of people who help me be successful. My children's father did a big part in raising him. My partner does 50-50 in terms of all of the, the chores and the stuff at home. You know, I'm surrounded by people that enable me to be successful. So it's not just about me winging it. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's a whole structural infrastructure that allows that to mm-hmm. yeah and I think all too often we have these role models in the newspapers that where it looks like oh this is one individual who makes it all happen but actually it's the ecosystem around it as well and um, I do want to talk to you about becoming an executive director because I have an agenda I would love more of the listeners to come to those roles can you tell us a bit about what an exec director actually does or what you do and maybe compare it to what you used to do when you were maybe at a lower level as an associate director or senior manager? What, what's the difference? So I guess more people will be familiar with the term partner. So if you have a partner in a law firm or something like that. So executive director is a similar grade. So it's kind of the top grade in our UK organization of, of real estate. Um, executive directors do lots of different things in terms of their core job. So mine's in consulting. We help people with workplace offices, uh, supply chain, all kinds of different real estate consulting. But I guess as an executive director, you then have further responsibilities of leading the company as a whole. So whether that is, as I mentioned, I sit on the UK strategy board. So working with colleagues to think about what's the next thing, three to five years, you know, how is our company structured today? How do we need to structure differently? Are there acquisitions we need to look at? All different areas that way. We also take on a lot more of the kind of welcome new people into the business. So executive directors lead the new inductions. I said, I exec sponsor. I've just actually come from today, Estates Gazette Future Leaders. So it was a, we take one person from lots of the big firms and they go through young people presenting. So I look after as an exec sponsor with my colleague, Tom, the apprentices and graduates. So there's lots of other things that you do to drive the business. So whilst you want to be successful in your own role and your own P&L, when you get to that level, it's also about leading the whole company and setting an example and making, you know, reflecting what we do positively at CBRE and the whole real estate industry as well, which is a great privilege. It's something that also is kind of a a lesson from that that I asked for. And I know people always say, like, how do you get promoted? I have a brilliant boss. I have. But I went to him and I prepared a little bit and, and went to him and said, I think I'm ready. We have promotion rounds, a bit like you can imagine in law firms and so on. So I was like, I'd like to be put forward for a promotion in the next round. I talked briefly through all the reasons why I, I believed I was ready for that. And then I also had anticipated what might be the reasons that people thought I wouldn't be ready and then gave the mitigations. <laughs> you know, People might think this, but actually. So I'd kind of prepared the arguments for and against and how to get around those. And at the end of that call, he said, yeah, I will support you. Now, whether that would have happened, whether he would have proactively come to me and said, you're ready. I don't know. But there is a lesson in if you don't ask, you don't get. It's tough to have those conversations, but um, there is no harm that could have come from that. The worst thing he could have said is, no, not now. And in which case, we have a conversation about what that roadmap looks like for the next round. So I do encourage everybody to, again, be uncomfortable about just asking for those things, asking for those pay increases, those promotions. But also, if you don't feel confident yourself having that conversation, find a mentor or find a peer or somebody that can help you to prepare for that. So again, we do a lot of promotion and and career mentoring. 
So there are lots of ways of supporting. Equally, we do a lot around sponsorship. And it's quite an important distinction between a mentor and a sponsor. A sponsor is there to be in the rooms that you're not in and have you know, make sure that your name is spoken about, that you're put forward for stretch assignments, for promotions, for other roles. So identifying not just getting your manager to support you, but thinking about what mentors, what sponsors you can get. And equally, if you have people who work in a team underneath you, that who's your succession plan? Getting all of the pieces around you ready. Promotion doesn't just happen in a lot of companies. It doesn't just happen because you're good at your job. And I think that's a real misconception that people think, if I work really hard, they'll definitely recognize that I'm ready for the next promotion or the pay increase. But it's a lot around you influencing all around the 360 around you, whether it's it's your peers being supportive of you moving up a succession plan underneath. And then you've got bosses, mentors, sponsors pulling you up as well. I was taught PIE, P-I-E, Profile Impact Exposure. So you really need to focus on your pie. <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. I think particularly British and particularly being a woman, again, it's that we'll come across as arrogant or, you know, people won't like me if I'm doing that. And it isn't about just showboating all the time, but it's looking for all of those opportunities to raise your profile, to make sure that people understand the impact that you're delivering. If you're not telling people, they may not know. So, yeah, that was, that was mm, it's interesting. Mm. I mean, I'm really pleased you're saying all these things because they're exactly on, as a mentor to Leader Plus Fellows, they are exactly on message with what we want them to hear. And what, what always strikes me when I see the people on the program is that actually the actions taken to raise the profile, they're not that complicated. You know, you can Google how to do it. But I think what sits underneath that is the assumption that it's okay to do it and the assumption that if you have a right to do it and it's justified. And I think that's actually where we spent more of the time rather than the how to. And, and that's exactly what you alluded to earlier when we said, you know, it's about thinking how to overcome that imposter syndrome. Yeah. Mm, and I, interesting. I don't know about the imposter syndrome is one that I struggle with a little bit because it's almost gaslighting to say you've got imposter syndrome. So you go and work on yourself. Right? Well, it's really this, it's the, the environment that's making that person feel that way. So I struggle a little. I, I'm not denying that people feel the imposter syndrome. It's just how we talk about it, that it's not about go and have some confidence training or go and do that. Actually, organizations, if they have people in their organizations feeling that, need to think about why those people are feeling like that and what structural environmental changes we need to make in organizations to make people feel that they belong. So I, I guess you can always improve yourself, but you can see my point there. I completely agree with you. I think until about two years ago, we did not have anything in the fellowship program about imposter syndrome, even though people every time said, oh, could we have something about imposter syndrome? Every time. And the reason exactly I held back is because of what you said. The term assumes that it's not the structural, you know, it's not this, all this, the messages that you're getting since you are a child, that you've been a child, that you should be pleasing others. It's not that you're being talked over at meetings regularly. But it's that there's something wrong with you need to fix. But I guess people are using the term. So we have actually now included something about it, but exactly with, oh, well, actually, it's imposter syndrome, but just think about it's the system, not you. Yeah, I love that, that mantra of um, fix the system, not the women. No, mm. I repeat that very exactly. often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wondered, not to challenge you, but just to talk openly about money. I wonder whether there's something in that pie, or I guess it could be impact, that also you had to show that you can generate income. I'm assuming that in order to become an exec director, a partner, or be that a CEO of charity, you have to show that you are able to generate income for the organization. Would you agree with that? Or feel free to challenge me if not. I mean, it depends on the nature of your role. Like in our organization, we have a set of competencies for each grade for fee earners, and then a set of competencies for non-fee earners. So it's perfectly possible to raise to the top level as a non-fee earner. But there's a distinct okay. kind of way of, of doing that. But absolutely. But again, what I'm seeing more of in organizations is it is whole person leadership. It's not just make the big money, get to the top. It doesn't matter, you know, that kind of term of toxic rock star. It doesn't matter who they are or how they act. If they bring in the big bucks, they get promoted. That is becoming more historic, I think, in organizations that I work with or work for. It is much more about you have to be a role model. You have to lead with integrity. You have to have good empathy and all of the rounded skills that actually everyone is 
can learn and be good at is not simply about fee earning. But yes, I also have to earn fees to do that. I don't usually interrupt a podcast for ads, but as you know, I really passionately believe we need more people who don't look like your stereotypical white, male, stale, middle-class leader works nine to five in decision-making roles. And so I just want to take a minute to very warmly invite you to apply to our cross-sector fellowship program. That is, if you're listening right now, you're caring for your kids, you do find the juggle tough at times, but also you do have big dreams for your career. And if that's you, then I would love it if you would put an application in. Any questions, just get in touch. I've asked a past fellow, Jennifer Crowley, to share with you what she got from the experience. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. This is Jennifer's experience. Hi, I'm Jennifer Crowley, Global Director of Responsible Business with Kin and Carta. We are a digital transformation consultancy with colleagues around the world and really, really proud to be the first listed B Corp and the London Stock Exchange. I completed Leaders Plus um, program in 2021 as I was returning from Matley with my second child. It was game changing for me. I feel so lucky to have met it, to have met the program, to have met Verena, to have met the structure, the preparation and the diligence that goes into every minute of every call. It is such good value. Why has it been game changing for me? I met it at the right time. I was really clear that I did not want to repeat that dip that I experienced from my first maternity leave. My ambition was higher than ever. And so I needed to be quite intentional about seeking out the support that my mind, my intellect and my emotions needed to get back in the game as I was returning from that leave. The people that I met on the course have become allies and uh, co-conspirators for life, I hope. We've met in real life a few times, but the hybrid nature of the Leaders Plus program has really worked for schedules and for deadlines and for all of the competing demands of life. My advice to anyone considering whether they deserve such a support program is don't hesitate. Do prioritize, do fight for the time to get clear on why and how you will work it. It's a muscle. And so the structure The insight, the research that the course brings you does deserve that time to to reflect upon and to incorporate into how you go about your work, into the annual targets that you will set as part of your role. I offer my absolute support and encouragement to anybody that's considering the program. Very specifically, it equips you with knowledge, it reduces your doubt, and it galvanizes your ambition into a very constructive plan. I don't think it's any coincidence that I'm now in my dream role, working with Kin and Carter's executive board to really solidify our ESG ambitions, to recertify for B Corp, and to go on and do great things for our clients in the context of the climate and diversity and inclusion. Can I ask, and again, challenge me if I'm wrong, but there is something I think about your industry and that it is it is quite there are elements of it well some people can call it male dominated and that there are a lot more men than women definitely and sometimes I've been told that type of environment comes with a lot of behaviors that maybe don't necessarily fit well with someone who doesn't want to work all hours of the day who maybe has strengths that some women have not that all women have a particular type of strengths but sorry I'm basically talking around the houses here but I'm just thinking is there anything that you've learned about succeeding in an organization that historically has had or sorry in an industry that has had lots of males yeah I mean I have grown up in an industry so this year is my 25th year of service and kind of Congratulations. different areas of real estate I started in facilities management so sort of running all the building services through to more of this real estate advisory consultancy. And yeah, absolutely, it remains certainly at the senior levels now. I think more junior levels now, there is, we've had a lot of years of raising, bringing in graduate cohorts or apprentice cohorts, more 50-50 or even 60-40 to women. And there is a greater culture of DE&I and all of the different initiatives that aren't just now bits of statements on a website, it's actually happening. 
I don't know, what have I learned? I had lots of training kind of and lots of managers early on in my career who would try and shape me to be what I would say is are more male traits. I, you know, do more like forceful speaking. Don't always be kind and soft and oh, what else was there? I always got told, don't tidy the chairs up after you leave a meeting room because that makes you look junior. <laughs> Various things of, or people have said, you don't have gravitas was a thing that I got quite a lot. I resisted changing who I was entirely to meet a perceived notion of what leadership needs to look like. And I've been, whilst I have learned and I've evolved as a person, I've really tried to stay me and what I felt comfortable with, what I felt authentic with, what matched with my own personal values and integrity. So I think you will feel, if you are in those male-dominated industries, you'll feel the pressures to change the shape of you or to go into an office and be somebody else. And you can't be the best you. You can't be comfortable if you're having to put yourself into a shape that you're not. So I guess, yeah, the advice is that you can stay true to who you are whilst learning and whilst adapting, because we all need to have different management styles, different leadership styles, but don't feel that you have to lose who you are to be successful in those. And, you know, I have always been a person who challenges the status quo, who asks the awkward questions, who yeah, pushes organisations to be better and pushes leaders to be better. And as long as you do that in a way that is appropriate and well-meant and you're not doing that in a, an aggressive way or whatever else it is, then actually you can make change happen. And I've loved working in this organization because I, if there, if there are things I see that, that I don't like or I don't like the way they're done, I feel that we, can, we have a, an ability to change them. So if you are in a role that you are forced to be something that you are not comfortable to be, I think it's consider if it's the right role. And I know that, again, sounds privileged because finding another job is difficult and so on. But actually, more people are leaving roles now and actually saying this is not a culture or an environment that I want to be in. And if you can't see that it's a place you can flourish, I think it's consider if it's the right place. And employers have to change the cultures where there are you know, heavily male dominated or in any way it's not reflective of the community that in the surrounding area, then those organizations will struggle to attract and retain employees. So. I would say 25 years in, there are there is a lot less overt sexism. <laughs> it's very, very rare that that overt sexism. Earlier in my career, you would have people who pinched your bottom, who said just overtly sexist things all the time. You know, the kind of someone's dropped something off the desk and, you know, or while you're down there, love. That was just commonplace. When you look back at it and you think, how on earth did I get through that? But you almost just it was what you expected. I am very pleased that I work in a place that that doesn't happen or it happens very rarely. But actually now what is harder to crack is the unconscious bias, is the systemic sexism. Those are things that you, I mean, if you read Invisible Women by Caroline Carter-Perez, that book is like putting on, seeing the whole world in a different way. And if any of the listeners haven't read that, you read that book and you start to go, oh, so that's why that felt hard. Or well, that's why that doesn't work for me. It's incredible to think about the world in a different way. So um, everyone will have the stories of the sexism that they've encountered in the offices, on public transport, in the streets. But the workplace to me, where I am today, feels much safer and much better. And it's a place where I individually can be entirely myself, be very authentic and thrive. And that's that's the place that I want to be. Yeah. And you strike me as someone who has helped to create that over the years. And even now, you listed at the beginning all the numerous activities and initiatives you're part of. Um, I sometimes come across parents, including some of the listeners here, who really want to drive change, who are probably more at the senior manager, associate director type level, but who need to think about managing their energy. You know, you have very young children. You also want to progress your career and there's so much wrong that you want to change. Can you think back when you were in that stage where you had young children, how did you, what did you do to keep that sense of possibility and that energy for driving change whilst also surviving? Yeah, well, I had young children at a time when childcare was vaguely affordable. I think that's, again, a privilege. My children both went to nursery, my eldest from six months, my younger one from a year. And then I also had an au pair. So 
we had nurseries, and then I had an au pair all through primary school. So effectively, there were three parents. So, you know, I'd say cheated, and that's the wrong word. I outsourced. That made it possible for me to go to work, travel. I was running businesses in continental Europe and stuff. So I wouldn't have been able to do that without that childcare. So I have to acknowledge that, 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 that that was something that I could afford. It was horrendously expensive then, and now it's impossibly expensive. And the au pair was actually my cousin, who was Australian, who came over and lived with us through the primary. So that was a, I had the benefit of that. It is I can do a lot of the things that I've listed now. I do now. I've got more bandwidth because of having older children. If I cast my mind back to then, a yes, having support with childcare, and I probably didn't do as much of the extracurricular kind of stuff. We were talking earlier about my sister Charlotte, who is a CEO and has two young children and still does all of that extracurricular. She's on so many boards. I don't know how she does it. It's insane, but she is an amazing woman. I think I I did small things. So, for example, in the office, when there were perhaps redundancies, I would volunteer to be on the kind of employee council. So it's within working hours and you get support to do it. Joining diversity networks, for example. There are good ways that you can do small things within working hours and they don't necessarily have to impinge on outside working hours. And you know, there's things like signing petitions, you know, things you can do, small things that you keep alive that burning spirit. But when you don't have enough time or energy to really drive forward, and then when you get that capacity in whichever way you can, you can probably grow from that. Yeah, I guess. And understanding what your passions are, because if you can find the things that you're passionate about, then somehow that doesn't feel like extra work. It feels like something I'm going to find a way to do. What's the next change you're going to drive, do you think? Let's, you know, If I meet you again in five or even 10 years' time, what do you think? Never. What would you have loved to, I am, to change? I am never a planner like that. Like I've mm-hmm. never had a career plan. <laughs> I've never been able to answer that, what do you want to do or be or see in the next three or five years? I've kind of, my career has been a series of probably happy accidents, but good sponsorship, you know, I haven't really had to say, I want this, I'm going to drive it too much. So next, the changes I want to see, I think from our own organization, we're on a really great path. So today we launched a partnership with Fertility Matters at Work. So one of the things that a lot of people have asked for in the Women's Network and the Family Network is about fertility. So we've got some great policies, but we don't really talk about it enough. We don't educate managers to think about how to do it. So we've changed some of our policies couple of years ago about allowing paid fertility leave but this is now a next step so I think all of the things that we have put in place as an organization in terms of policy and support what I want to see through and I know there are a lot of people in our organization working on this is that that gets embedded into cultural change because you can have all the great policies and all the great resources but actually as long as one person doesn't have a great maternity or return to work experience doesn't get offered flexible work or you know, have that flexible work, then we're only as good as the worst experience. So mm-hmm. it takes a lot to get that cultural change into every corner of a big organisation. Equally, I think in the UK, we are very fortunate to have a lot of forward thinking around inclusive workplaces and inclusion. And I work with colleagues globally who, when I talk about the policies and the things we're doing in the UK, they're like, Oh, if only. <laughs> probably, you know, the Nordics are probably even up there better. But I try to work with colleagues in different countries as well to see how we can take small steps forward in their areas and, and learning from what we've done successfully in the UK. So it's that. For me, from a work perspective, I just want to see that we keep moving forward. You know, we have things like quotas around gender and ethnicity at different levels and grades. So we've got those set up for 2025. So I'd like to hope that we have made progress either to achieve them or to be near them and then setting what's the next ambitious targets around inclusion so yeah i mean i don't even you don't want to get me started talking about what i see and what i want to see in the uk in terms of politics or world but yeah i want to just see continued progress it would be lovely to be faster <laughs> i'm interested though because you do spend a lot of your time thinking about the future of work and things have changed a lot in the industrial age we were all working 70 hours a week now and then it moves to six days a week now it's five days a week do you have a sense of what might the big shifts be in the next five ten years 
with the future yeah. of work? I mean, we did do something pre-pandemic. We did something called Portfolio 2040. And we talked about the future of work in 2040. And actually what the pandemic did was bring a lot of that really faster and accelerated a lot of those trends. So I think we are, when I actually a talk a colleague did this afternoon was around the amount of time people stay in jobs. With every generation, the average time in a job with one company gets shorter. And there's not, with Gen Z, I think it's something like two and a half years currently. So you are going to get a much more transient workforce. I think there is going to be continued increase in the number of contingent workers. So that kind of portfolio career, the freelancing, the I'm working for this company, but I'm also doing these other things, moving around dynamically, being able to work remotely, you know, this whole digital native piece. One of the best ways to actually go live in continental Europe now is to get uh, digital nomad visas. And lots of countries are offering those. So I think there's much more fluidity and lots more flexibility. And that's quite scary sometimes because sometimes you just want, well, I, I want to work for that company, be a PAYE employee, do my time. <laughs> and actually, it's quite exciting. I think that you're going to have opportunities to do that piece of creative work that you've always wanted and, and support that charitable work that you've always wanted, but also do some of you know, all the different things and try them. So it's not like I'm on one career path. I just do that. You can try all different things. You can almost fail fast sometimes and go, I'm going to try that. Right. That didn't work. Let's try something else. So a lot more fluidity. And that's the same then in, in terms of real estate and offices. It's going to change and adapt a lot more. more. We also are going to have the most diverse generations coming through each generation is more diverse than the last i adore gen z I, we've given up saying gen z <laughs> gen z <laughs> they are changing the world i love their absolute faith that they will do that it's not a, mm. i would like that to happen it will happen it's not mm. i would like these certain things in a job or a role it's i will have them or i won't stay Mm. that I think I'm a, um, my spirit is a Gen Z even if the body is not <laughs> mm. so interesting it's an exciting time it's a scary time one thing I love to read each year is the Edelman trust barometer so they survey 30,000 people every year about trust and it's trust in government trust in media trust in companies and to see that trust is depleted so much in government and media but actually people trust companies and employers more than anyone else. But that means that they demand of their employees, they want their employers to fix climate change. They want their employers to fix childcare costs, all of these social issues, the cost of living crisis. People are turning more and more to their employers because society, government, media is not to be trusted. And it's how then, what do you want from your job? Like if I had, someone had said 10 years ago, we'd be launching fertility support in a workplace. I think people would have what? <laughs> so it's how far does that go in the future and does the blur between personal work social it, it just all gets much more mixed up now hmm. interesting we just did a survey with a thousand more than a thousand parents and one thing that has come through really strongly is time being a key decision maker if you're staying or if you're going elsewhere so people choosing not to go for a senior role because they think it's going to take more time and they have less time for the children or having less control over their time. And that's why they are moving to another employer. Where do you see, and this is very fresh thinking, so we only looked at the data this morning. Where do you see the relation between employers and time move to? I mean, you have, obviously, you've got all of the four-day working week pilots, and there's a lot of global movement about that. You know, We have a team of specialists who look at talent and location strategy. And this was probably two years ago, they were saying the four-day working week is coming. And I think that will continue to grow. There is a, you know, you've seen the working legislation in France around not being able to send emails or work outside certain hours or weekends. I think it is becoming more acceptable for people to set boundaries and to respect boundaries. It's hard as an individual to set them and stick to them. But actually, if organizationally you can start, and I, I can see this happening certainly in our own organization of you know, if my team come back from maternity leave and say they're going to work part time, but on these days they're going to finish early to do children, then we, we say that to everyone and say, this is how that individual's working. Please respect that. And as long as you support that as an organization, it's the manager's job to do that, not necessarily the individuals to keep saying, I'm really sorry, I don't work on that day. 
there is a culture of respecting boundaries a lot more. But that said, there is still a lot of long hours here and there. I have a really strong mantra, which I don't always remember myself, but I say to others, which is classic me, um, a work expands the time you give it. And if you go into a new job or you're in any job and you overwork and you work too many hours, it's really hard to rein that back. But if you set boundaries or even if you slowly eke them back and set some boundaries. So, for example, I would say on a Thursday afternoon after work, after school, we're going to have a board game night. So on that night, I'm not going to work. And that just sets one thing that I'm doing for someone else. So I'm going to stick to it or I'm going to have a yoga class on that one time or whatever it is you set those boundaries, then you have to work smarter within it. I think we quite often, I have worked in evenings and weekends because I think I just need to get meeting people all day and I'll do that stuff because I can't concentrate in the office. But now we've got space like a library space or focus room so you can do that focus work during the day. So it's a bit on you to think about setting boundaries and working to them. And it's a bit on the organisation to respect work-life balance but it's very different in different organizations but certainly where I work there is a greater respect for that and you know people have much more open conversations around things like mental health a lot of leaders are now talking openly around that a lot of organizations have well-being programs it's a bit useless if you have a well-being program but you're overworking people (laughs) the fundamentals is people have to be able to do what they do within the hours that they work and I think we are moving towards that there's not such the glorification of always being busy you know, it's not a badge of honour to be running all over the place and working nights and weekends. That's not it's not a sign of a good employee or a good leader, she says when she does it quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is so hard though, because it's so ingrained in our habits and um, we've all grown up a certain way through an industry. So if someone hears this and thinks, well, actually, I want to get to the type of role that Kate has, and I work in, let's say, in finance, which is also very long hours culture, From your experience or maybe seeing other people that you regard as role models, what would be one or two things that someone like that can do to actually have most of the evenings off and still get to an exec director role? Or am I just asking the impossible and we have to face up in that it's not possible? No, no, I think it's possible. It's not going to be possible every day, every week. There are peak times and particularly in finance, there are financial calendar, month ends, year ends, budget settings, times. But I think it is talking about it as a team, like having those open conversations and say, I think we all as a team need to look at how we have. So it's not just I'm going to do this for me, but actually let's talk about it as a team. How do we work as a team to make sure that people have acceptable hours? What is it that we're doing that could be automated, that could be done in a smarter way? Are we having too many meetings for too long? Can we make shorter meetings? There's all kinds of diary tricks that you can do about blocking out time and things. So I don't think there's one thing. Working for the right company sometimes helps. But even when you're in a company or where you think that culture exists today, try and change it. Have the conversations. Try small steps. Like you don't have to change things with completely revolutionizing the way you work. If you think somebody described it to me, if you think about the nose of a plane, when the plane, it might have been one of your webinars now, I'm thinking about this. (laughs) But you just nudge the nose of the plane a tiny degree and actually you end up in a totally different destination. So even like exercise, you don't have to get a personal trainer and do 100 hours a week of exercise if you just do 10 minutes every day, eventually over time. So I think it's small habits build up over time. Don't try and do it all by yourself. Think about your colleagues will also have a very similar, I'm sure, desire to feel a little happier in their work-life balance. Yeah, and just small steps and small changes will add up over time absolutely well said there's no magic bullets but if we all edge towards it then the plane will fly in the right direction i hope and we are coming to the end of our conversation is there anything else that you desperately wanted to say to the listeners before we close off wow i think i said it a little bit earlier but have kind conversations with yourself i think that's you know we are often our own harshest, harshest critics where we should be our own best supporter. If you're saying stuff to yourself that you wouldn't say to a friend or a colleague, it's not right. So be kind to yourself as well as kind to other people. Yeah, and oh goodness, there's not a right way of doing everything. There's not a book that can tell you everything. There's not a right time to start a family or to not. Each person has their own path. 
it's a bit like grieving, like grieving doesn't look like one thing. It's it, no one can tell you the right way to grieve in the same way. No one can tell you the right way to parent or parent and pursue a career. There are different things and everybody struggles. I think that's a really thing. Like if you can tell yourself you're good enough, that for me was a really way, good way of getting through it. Um, and know that no, all of you might see people who have the glittering careers and look like they have it all. They're also struggling. You don't know what each individual is going through. So be kind to yourself and don't think that you're doing something wrong. The system is very, very difficult. And the environment that you're trying to do all of these things is difficult. And you're doing more right than you think you are probably. Mm. And it's really good if you are listening to this and you're trying to get to a more senior level. That's a really good thing. And you're going to change things for the future generations, I think, just by being there and setting different role models. So thank you. And a big thank you to you, Kate. You've been wonderful. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> if people want to find out about CBRE, about you, where should they go? Maybe the first thing to do is connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm not very good on all the other social media platforms, but LinkedIn, I do. So you can just search for Kate Smith CBRE and then just drop me a note to say you listen to it or follow me or connect with me. I do a lot of posting on there, a lot about inclusion and feminism and diversity. So that's probably the best thing to do. And then I'm always happy to have cups of coffee chats with anyone who wants to get to know me or CBRE. We also opened our beautiful new building that I know you and the team have some sessions in. So it's wonderful. Yes. Anyone wants to come and see a beautiful office in London, I'm very happy to also show people around. <laughs> it is very beautiful. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening and spending this time with me today. If it has been helpful to you, but you would like more support from others to help you develop your career and enjoy your family in a realistic way, then I would love for you to consider joining our fellowship program, which is a high impact program helping you progress your career with little ones in tow. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. On the fellowship, you will get access to an amazing group of peers who all have experienced bringing up kids whilst progressing their career. You'll get access to brilliant role models who've been there, done that, support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no, and you'll be given time to develop your vision and make a plan for what you want to achieve in your career, but also in your family life. And you'll do that in small group sessions. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or have got senior responsibility, more senior responsibility by the end of the program, for example, a board role. And they have all got involved in some shape or form in driving vital change for working parents. In terms of the impact on work-life balance, there has been a increase of let me think was it 61 or 59 61 or 59 percent i need to look up the data in terms of the self-perceived ability to manage work-life balance so real massive impact so if you want to join then do put in an application we've got until the 29th of october 2023 and all the info is on leadersplus.org forward slash apply <laughs>